Today's sermon comes from Genesis 41, 37 through 57. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set over all of the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set over all of the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all of the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all of the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all of the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all of the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to do, do. So when the famine had spread over all of the land, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all of the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Few of us from the uh, fellowship program were able yesterday afternoon to serve at the city rescue mission downtown. And we served dinner about five o'clock um, to residents in the facility, but then they also opened the doors and let the homeless come off the streets in for a meal. And it was wonderful to serve and to clean tables and to give them food and to fill cups of water. And, but probably the, the, the best part of it was getting to sit down and interact and have a little bit of fellowship with some of these people that had come in. And, and I had two significant conversations. One was with an older man who had no living relatives, no living relatives and, and very low recollection of anything really in his life. The second conversation I had was with a couple that was 20 years old. They had just moved down from Ohio about a year ago. They had a 14-month-old baby in a stroller, and she was 34 weeks pregnant. And she and the baby were staying in a shelter, and he was living in his car trying to find work. And I left that, our time, and I got in the car, and what, the question that kept ringing in my heart and mind was, why me? 
Right? Why, why am I not married with a young child and going to a homeless shelter for food? Why am I not uh, older and I have no living relatives, nobody left, children, family, wife, whatever it may be? Why me? And my immediate response was the grace of God. By the grace of God, I'm where I'm at. <laughs> By the grace of God, I'm not homeless and on the street and going to the city rescue mission for a meal. But it's the same question. You don't have to go to a homeless shelter to have that question ring in your heart and mind. You'll see it in your neighborhood, maybe in your school, where you come across somebody who's on hard times and they're unable to have any kind of perspective or hope because they don't have Christ. And you say, God, why me? Why do I have hope? <laughs> Why'd you choose me and rescue me out of the pit? The other answer to that why me question that kept surfacing in my heart and mind was, so that. Now I'm gonna borrow a phrase from our former pastor of our Mandarin congregation, John Sidema. He would say it all the time. When you read the scriptures throughout the story of the Bible, over and over, God is choosing. God is calling. God is electing. We see it with Joseph, the youngest of a bunch of older brothers, but God chooses Joseph. Right, that over and over in the Bible, when you see God choose, God call, God elect, it never, never ends with privilege and comfort. It always is you're chosen, you're called, you're elect, so that. Right, 1 Peter 2.9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, so that you can declare the praises of him. There's always a so that attached to it, which is mission. That you're called to be on mission. You're called not to a place of comfort and privilege. In fact, we see it in the Joseph story. Remember, he was called in chapter 37 by God. God placed favor on him, and he was the youngest, brattiest brother who took that calling and that favor and used it for privilege to raise himself over his brothers. God had work to do, didn't he, in Joseph's life. And by the end of the story, as we're gonna see, he realized he was chosen and called to not privilege and comfort, to suffer and to serve to be sent. And so we're called. We're called to mission. The question is, how do we respond to it? How do you respond to God's call to mission? By chapter 41, we're seeing here that Joseph is starting to turn the corner, and that he's called, and his mission is starting to take shape of why God called him and what he's called for. And so we can learn a lot here about what it looks like to respond to God's call, to be sent, to be on mission. First, the authority of mission. Joseph is giving tremendous power in this chapter. I'll just catch you up briefly. He was falsely accused in Potiphar's house by Potiphar's wife of rape. He gets thrown in prison. In prison, he, he interprets the dreams of uh, the cupbearer and the baker of Egypt. And he says to him, remember me when you go back to Pharaoh? Of course, they get back to Pharaoh, they forget him. Joseph spends two years in prison. Then Pharaoh has dreams, he can't interpret them. And the cupbearer says, oh, wait a minute, Pharaoh, I know of somebody. And he speaks of Joseph. Joseph gets called out of prison to stand before Pharaoh, interprets his dreams. Pharaoh is so impressed, he basically raises Joseph to be prime minister in Egypt. But look at the language in verses 39 to 44. Right, verse 40, you shall be over my house and all my people. Verse 41, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Verse 42, God, Pharaoh took his signet ring, which was the, the ring of power, and put it on Joseph's hand. 
In verse 43, they called out before him, bow the knee. And Joseph has been appointed prime minister of Egypt. Tremendous power he's been given. But for what purpose? For what purpose? Look at verse 57. And this is after the famine had hit, right? Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt. All the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was so severe on the earth. All the earth is coming to Joseph for life, for food. Joseph had this tremendous power to bless the world. Now, before you ask the question, how then can I, like Joseph, use my power to bless the world? You have to ask this question, who are you in this story? You're not Joseph. You're the starving family in the land of Canaan. Joseph is a Christ figure. Joseph is the Christ figure. It's similar to uh, the story of David and Goliath, right? The, the message of David and Goliath is not be like David, be brave like David and go fight your Goliath. That's not the message. No, you and I are the scared Israelites in that story, in the tent, shaking, wondering, is somebody gonna protect us from this evil Goliath? David is the Christ figure. Jesus fights for us. So in this story, you and I right, are the starving family in need of food, in need of life. And Joseph has been given this tremendous power and he's a figure of Christ. And the world is coming to him. The great commission in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So go and make disciples. See, Jesus says, all authority is given to me. I have all power. I hold the keys to life. I hold the keys to life. And may the nations come to me for life. And at the end of the Great Commission, he says what? And behold, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Now, why is this so critical that you understand when we talk about mission, first and foremost, the authority of mission? Why is it so important that you understand that Jesus is the capital M missionary? Right, that the world is coming to out of their famine of sin for life. It's because what you'll see in both the Joseph story and the Great Commission is this intersection of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Consider the Joseph story. Joseph takes action to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. But the only reason that Joseph is in that position is because God has taken him out of prison and sovereignly put him in front of Pharaoh. So you consider the Great Commission, the intersection of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. The Great Commission, right? it's bookended with Jesus' authority and power and Jesus' presence. And in the middle is, now therefore, go. <laughs> In light of Jesus being all-powerful and his presence being with you, now go on mission and make disciples of all nations. See, it's God's sovereignty and salvation, God's election and salvation that is to motivate evangelism, not discourage it. Now, oftentimes, and it's sad to say, oftentimes God's sovereignty and salvation is the very thing that is used as an excuse to not go, to not go evangelize, to not be on mission. And it goes something like this, statements like, God is gonna save who he's gonna save. So it doesn't matter what I do, right? Wrong. God is gonna save who he's gonna save. Yes, he's sovereign in salvation. But yes, it matters what you do. In fact, the greatest missionary we probably know, 
arguably, in the history of the earth is the Apostle Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament. The man who wrote in Ephesians 1 that you're chosen before the foundation of the world is the same man in, in Galatians 4.19 that says, I am suffering in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, is the same man who was beaten over and over as he went across cities in Asia Minor to share the gospel. That's the same man that said you're chosen before the foundation of the world. You see, it's God's sovereignty and salvation that propelled Paul, motivated him to go share. There's a great story of how these intersect in Acts 18 with Paul. In Acts 18, Paul's in Corinth and he shared the gospel and he has been rejected by the Jews. Massive rejection. So Paul is, is sitting in his rejection and failure in the midst of his evangelistic efforts. And this is what God says to him. In verse nine, he says to Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Okay, so he says, do not be afraid. There it is, the fear, fear of evangelism, fear of mission, right? Fear of failure, Paul had experienced it. Fear of rejection, Paul had experienced it. And God says, don't be afraid. Now, next verse, what's his motivation for that? What's the motivation God gives Paul to not be afraid and to continue to press on in mission and not be silent? What he doesn't say is this, Paul, don't be silent. Those people need you. Paul, don't be silent. They need you. He doesn't say that. Listen to what he says in verse 10 to Paul. Don't be afraid. Why? For I am with you. Presence, right? Great commission. And no one will attack you to harm you. Protection. For I have many in this city who are my people. There it is. God's sovereignty and salvation election. Paul, he's saying, Paul, I have many in this city who I've chosen before the foundation of the world. Don't go silent. Go share the gospel because there's people ready to respond. And I know you're sitting in the midst of rejection, but go and share because there's people and their hearts are prepared and they're ready to respond. You see that God's sovereignty. God said, how am I going to motivate Paul in his, in his fear? It's God's sovereignty. That's motivated. And, then, and then verse 11 says, Paul for a year and six months stayed in Corinth teaching the gospel. The point is Jesus' authority and power is what should propel you, not discourage you or make you lazy or slothful or complacent. That, that Jesus' authority and power and sovereignty should propel you into your neighborhood, propel you into your school, propel you into your workplace with the good news of Jesus. So how do you respond to God's call to mission? First and foremost, as you know, the authority of mission, that Jesus is capital and missionary. Second, know the scope of mission. One of the striking features of this Joseph story is who is blessed by God through Joseph. If, you, if we back up to chapter 39, verse five, and this is when Joseph was over Potiphar's house. Listen to this. From, that, from the time that Potiphar made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, the blessing of the Lord, Yahweh, was on all that he had in house and field. The Egyptian's house. Egypt was a, was a, was a pagan nation. They, they worshiped 
foreign gods. They had nothing. They wanted nothing to do with the God of Israel. And yet God blessed them because of Joseph. And then you move to verse 57 in chapter 41 at the end. All the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain. Potiphar's house was blessed through Joseph. The prison was blessed through Joseph. Pharaoh's house was blessed through Joseph. Egypt was blessed through Joseph. The world was blessed. All the earth was blessed through Joseph. Everywhere Joseph went, things flourished. God's blessing poured through him. And what we see here is if you go back to the beginning of the story, certainly Joseph's family in Canaan would be blessed through Joseph. And Joseph's family at that time, that was the covenant family of God. That was the church. They were blessed, but it went far beyond them to the world. In fact, in the beginning of the story, what happens? Joseph is removed from his family, the covenant family of God, and sent in, in exile to Egypt as a slave. Right? To, to be a blessing in a foreign land that didn't worship the God of Israel. And that's the theme throughout the Old Testament. You know, fast forward, when Israel gets taken into exile in Babylon, they're sent into Babylon, this foreign land that worships foreign gods. And God sends them into exile with the gospel to be a blessing. Why? Because God is redeeming the entire world. He's redeeming the entire world. You are to be a blessing as a, as a representative of Christ, not just to the church, but to the entire world. The church is to be a blessing to the world. Now, what does this mean? Hey, we can talk about blessing. It sounds good. It's pretty vague. What does it mean? What does it mean that Joseph was a blessing to the world, that the church is a blessing to the world? When, when Israel was sent into exile in Babylon, okay, God wrote them a letter through the prophet Jeremiah. And in that letter, he said to his people in a foreign land that didn't worship the God of Israel, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. It was shocking news to them. They had just been ripped out into exile. Babylon had treated them harshly and cruelly. It was a cruel nation. They didn't believe in the God of Israel. They didn't worship the God of Israel. And God says, I want you to seek their good. And they're going, what? Seek their good? Look what they've done to us, God. God says, no, exactly. I want you to be a blessing to them. And that word welfare, seek the welfare of the city, that word welfare is the Hebrew word shalom. It's the word we have trouble even defining with an English word. It's, the, it's, it's flourishing on every conceivable level. Social, physical, emotional, economic, psychological, spiritual. It is just flourishing. And God says, I want you to seek their flourishing. I want you to seek their good. So how does it work? Well, look at in our story here in chapter 41, in verses 12 to 15. Joseph has been gifted to interpret dreams. And he uses his gift to interpret dreams to bless Pharaoh, this foreign king who doesn't worship the God of Israel. He uses his gift to bless Pharaoh. He's stewarding his gift to bless Whoever God puts in front of him, he's also clearly a gifted administrator and leader as prime minister. He uses his administrative and his leadership gifts 
to bless Pharaoh, bless Egypt, and to bless the entire earth in the famine. Right? That he, he is, now what's interesting here is that Joseph, notice, he didn't turn down the position of prime minister because Pharaoh was not a worshiper of the God of Israel. Or in, in modern words, he didn't turn down the position of prime minister because Pharaoh wasn't a believer. No, he took the position. And Joseph used public power for public good. He used public power for public good to bless the world. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, verses 43 to 48. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Understand what Jesus is saying here that you are to bless your enemies and you're to extend grace to them. Why? Because that's what God does. That's what God does. He sends the sun on the, the good and the evil. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. You know, God doesn't only give his beautiful sunrise to Christians and somehow not let his sunrise be seen by unbelievers. Nor does God only send his rain on, on the gardens and the crops of Christians and somehow keep his rain from following on, on, on non-Christians. No. God blesses those who don't know him, who don't thank him, who don't acknowledge him. It's called common grace. It's not common merit. Common grace that God pours out his blessing on the world. And he says, you're to do the same. You're to do the same. You're called with great generosity to bless those around you and seek their good. And you do this whether you're the CEO of a company or whether you're a janitor. God determines your scope of authority. Your scope of authority, relatively speaking, might be that. And some of you, your scope of authority is huge. We don't determine our scope of authority. God does. But when he places us in a, in a, within a scope of authority, he says, I want you to bless those around you. I want people to, to flourish in your presence, under your care. Now, let me give you two perspectives on this to try to get it down to a, a relevant level. Perspective from a janitor and a perspective from an executive. Now, I shared this story probably about a year ago, but there were a team of researchers from the University of Michigan and Yale who are doing a study to, to see how people in unglamorous jobs coped with their often devalued work. And so the, the occupation they chose to study was hospital janitors. And what they found when they went to uh, a, a major hospital in the Midwest shocked them because they found a certain subset of housekeepers, 
in that hospital that did not view themselves as janitorial staff. They viewed themselves as professional staff along with the nurses and the doctors to bring healing to patients. And for the janitors, what that meant for these couple they interviewed were the little things like a cup of water, uh, a box of Kleenex, getting to know the patients, getting to know their families. They, in fact, they interviewed one housekeeper. She said, listen to this. It's, it's extraordinary. She's a housekeeper. And she was in the room of a comatose patient and she started to rearrange the pictures on the wall in hopes that that change of scenery would help bring this patient out of a coma. She, along with the nurses and the doctors, had one common goal, and that was to bring healing to this patient. That's common good. Within your scope of authority, right? She was causing flourishing in her scope of authority in what she could do. Let me give you the second example. Sweatshops in Southeast Asia crank out many of the name brand clothes that you're probably wearing this morning. And some of those sweatshops, a lot of them, workers are paid very poorly. And oftentimes there's abusive situations going on in those factories. The question is, how, how do you respond to that as a Christian, as a follower of Christ? Do you boycott companies, major companies that are doing this? What do you do? Uh, missions expert, Peter Borthwick, he posed this question to a friend in Sri Lanka saying, what, what should we do? What is the, the, the appropriate response to what's happening? And, and his friend's comment was, don't boycott the companies. He said this, he said, tell people, especially your business people, to become executives for Nike and other multinational corporations that run these factories. In positions of leadership, they can bring a Christian influence of compassion and justice and mercy into that environment. They can make rules of how the factory workers are treated. That, that could turn a whole village towards the gospel. So Peter Borthwick, he, he came back and he was in New York City and he was speaking to a church and he, and he shared this with them. And afterwards, a, a man came up to him and said this. He said, that's a great idea. I'm the representative buyer with a factory we have in Madagascar. I buy jeans from that factory. I sell them on Fifth Avenue. We, <laughs> we buy jeans for a dollar and sell them for $400. Maybe we can do something. So he contacted the factory liaison that was, that was managing this factory. And he said, hey, how much would it cost Two, listen, pay for the school fees for the workers' children's, children, better housing, health care, improved sanitation, and more reasonable hours. This buyer, was, he was pursuing compassion for these workers. Guess what the response was from the liaison to, of, the, of the factory? He said, I'm so sorry. It would cost way too much for you to do that. Your cost per pair of jeans would go up to $4. And so he gave authority to have it done. Now, he gave up profit margin. Instead of, do the math, 400 minus one, there's probably other costs to get it here, but you get my point. 400 minus one, $399 versus $396 per pair of jeans. That's someone leveraging their power for the common good. That's someone leveraging their scope of authority to cause flourishing 
It caused these factory workers and their families in Southeast Asia to flourish. That's what it means to seek the common good, to use the gifts that God has given you to cause people to flourish under your care, under your leadership, under your influence. How do you respond to God's call to mission? You know the authority of mission. You know the scope of mission. Third, you know the way of mission. Listen, if, if I were to stop the sermon here, some of you would be scratching your heads. And we should be scratching our heads, saying, wait a minute. Jesus is capital and missionary. He gives me gifts, and he, and he, and he gives them to me to, to use for the common good, to bless people. But don't people need to know Jesus? right? Uh, Common grace is is wonderful, but if that's it, people are still left in their sin, unreconciled to God. So so what is the the way of mission? How do we we use our gifts to, to cause people to flourish and our environments to flourish for the common good, but to, but to do it in such a way that bears witness to Jesus Christ? And what I want you to see here, the multiple times in this chapter that Joseph bears verbal witness to God. Look at verse 16 of chapter 41. It's not printed for you, but listen, Joseph answered Pharaoh. This is when Pharaoh said, Joseph, I understand you interpret dreams, interpret my dreams. And he says, Joseph said to Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now, Joseph could have just interpreted his dreams and not said a word, right? He could have said, here's your dreams. But no, he, he gave verbal witness to the God of Israel, to a man, the king of Egypt, who did not worship the God of Israel, a man who worshiped foreign gods, and they had many of them in Egypt. He took a risk to be bold, to say, no, this isn't me, and it's not your grain gods. This is the God of Israel that is interpreting this dream for you. And then you go down to verse 32. And Joseph says, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Again, Joseph gives witness, verbal witness to the authority and power of the God of Israel to a man who worshiped the grain gods and tried to appease them to get his crops to grow. And Joseph basically said, listen, Your grain gods are dead gods. Let me tell you who's in charge here. It's the God of Israel. And he's saying this to the king of Egypt, right? There's a boldness there as he gives witness. And then you go to verses 50 to 52. Joseph married an Egyptian woman, but he had two sons and he gave the sons Hebrew names. Now that's a silent witness, but it's a witness. In Pharaoh's house, married to an Egyptian woman, he gives his son Hebrew names. And so you see Joseph bearing witness to who God is. And then what's Pharaoh's response? Verse 38, can we find a man like this? In whom is the spirit of God? Notice what Pharaoh said there. It wasn't, wow, Joseph is just a great man. He's generous, he's sharp, he's, he's smart, he, he has gifts. He said, now, can we find a man like this? What? In whom is the spirit of God? See, Pharaoh, because Joseph, he lived his deed out and he lived his word out and word and deed came together. And Pharaoh's response was the spirit of God, the spirit of Yahweh, of the, the God of Israel is in this man. 
Joseph bore witness. But what you notice here is that Joseph didn't withdraw or separate from the Egyptian culture, did he? I mean, look at his installation service as prime minister. He's putting on the garb and the gold and he's putting it all on. But he maintained his distinctives as a worshiper of the God of Israel. He didn't separate or withdraw, but he also didn't assimilate. And that's the message to us is that we're called, Jesus, capital M, missionary, who gives you gifts, we're called to bless people indiscriminately, generously, (laughs) to cause them to flourish, whether they, they know God or know Jesus or not. We bless them, but we're called to do it in a way that gives witness to Jesus. And you need both. If all that you do is, is common grace. If all that you do is to seek the good of the, the culture around you and engage with it, that's good. But if that's all you do, you leave people in their sin unreconciled to God. And if all you do is verbally give witness to Jesus Christ without any uh, uh, common good or seeking the common good of people, then you teach them a gospel. You're, you're failing to teach them the gospel that transforms everything. It's a holistic gospel that transforms all of life and the entirety of the world. So we're called to both. So I leave you with two questions this morning. Number one, are you engaged with your neighbors, coworkers, and classmates in such a way that you are seeking their flourishing, that you're seeking their good, that you're using your gifts to bless them? And then the second question is this, are you bearing witness to Jesus Christ? Are you bearing witness to Jesus Christ? Are you speaking of him? Not in an awkward, in a forced way, but in a way that reflects the relationship you have to him. Leslie Newbegin, who served as a missionary in India for many years, wrote this, and I close with this. Mission is not a burden laid upon the church. It is a gift and a promise to the church that is faithful. The command arises from the gift. Jesus reigns and all authority has been given to him in earth and heaven. When we understand that, we shall not need to be told to let it be known. Rather, we shall not be able to keep silent. Let's pray. Father, there are many pockets of this city that are represented in this room today. Pockets of business, pockets of schools, colleges, universities, pockets of of, of hobbies and sports and neighborhoods. Father, we pray with great boldness that we would be a people that would be generous to bless people with the gifts that you've given us. That you would in humility give us your desire because it's your heart to seek the good of those around us, the welfare, the shalom. 
Pray that people would flourish under our care, that they would flourish in our presence, that they would flourish under our influence. Oh, but Father, we pray that you would give us a boldness to bear verbal witness to Jesus Christ. And that our hearts would be overflowing so much that as we talk of Christ, it is natural. And people could say, as as Pharaoh said of Joseph, and this is a person that is good and loving, but this is a person that loves Jesus. And I want to know more. Father, would you put people in our midst? Would you give us stories of your grace, your sovereignty, opening hearts as we share the gospel in word and deed that we would see people come to faith, we would see conversion, that we would see salvation. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.